and so I am going here by train because I don't fly for climate reasons. It takes a bit longer, uh, but it's worth it. That was Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish activist who came to fame confronting world leaders and demanding they take action on global warming. But before Greta became an environmental icon, her activism started at home. In her early teens, she started making lifestyle changes in an effort to save the planet. And before long, she was sailing across from Plymouth to New York just to avoid the carbon emissions generated by a single transatlantic flight. Her actions have inspired millions of others to change their own travel habits, and even led to the coining of a new word in Swedish, flygskam, or the feeling of flight shame. Our question for this episode is, why do you fly? Or in Greta's case, why do you choose not to? Do we really need to travel so much? Do we want to? Are we really paying the true cost of travel when we fly from Prague to London for 30 euros? And should we be doing that just for an hour client meeting to visit a museum or watch a football match? What does your moral compass say about flying? Why do you fly? Welcome back to Should I Fly? My name is Patrick Reinmuller and together with Professor Jim Pulcrano, we've embarked on a journey of exploration into the passenger aviation industry. Throughout Should I Fly, we have talked with pilots, airport bosses, airline CEOs, industry associations, air traffic control organizations, technologists and investors. And now we want to talk about you. During the pandemic, people learned to replace business travel with Zoom, Teams, FaceTime, etc. And this has worked well, to a certain extent. The same for family connections. During the early days of the pandemic, many weren't allowed to travel and so did not have to answer the should I fly question. In this sixth episode, Patrick and I will talk about how we make the decision to fly. One could say that it's very simple. Either I have to fly or I want to fly. I have to be in a place by a certain time or I badly want to see this place or these people in person. And with my schedule, I have no choice. But when you look at a senior executive's work, can it all be done via Zoom? According to pre-pandemic research by Michael Porter and Nitin Noria of Harvard Business School, about half of a CEO's work was done at company headquarters, but the rest was conducted while visiting other company locations and meeting external constituencies. The top job in a company involves primarily face-to-face -face interactions, which took up 61% of the work time of the CEOs they study. The authors then suggested that executives avoid email and other mediated exchanges to go for face-to-face -face meetings. Can that all effectively be done via Zoom? Not just business. But what would happen if humanitarian organizations couldn't travel? Can we imagine Doctors Without Borders or the International Committee of the Red Cross not flying? So where do we set the moral compass? We asked Steve, a 35-year British Airways veteran, 
why he thought people flew and what might stop them. Well, they fly to get from A to B for either business or leisure reasons. What might cause them not to fly? Well, fear of flying. And of course, our airline was well known for its fear of flying courses to encourage people to get on the plane. Geopolitical things impact, you know, so global recession will mean people will stop flying, threat of terrorism, um, pandemics. For the first time in, in humanity, we can go and visit any place on the planet, right? And we can discover, but we can also discover virtually. So how do you balance that out? Do I really need to be there or could I do a, a virtual reality tour? That was Eric Stevenson. You may remember him from one of our earlier episodes. He's an American living in Paris, having survived two near-death airline disasters, including the famous Miracle on the Hudson. That was Captain Sully speaking to the LaGuardia Airport air traffic control tower. We're going to be pushing back to the gate in just a moment. If you would please take your seat if you've not already done so. So it was a flight like any other flight. I took off from New York. It was a winter day. Actually, I wasn't even supposed to be on that flight. My earlier flight was canceled, and so I was rebooked onto this flight. So we took off from LaGuardia, normal flight path. We're going over uh, the Bronx. And while I know New York very well, I don't know the Bronx that well. And so I was looking at all of the red roofs and the houses and all of that as the, and this pristine moment. And all of a sudden I saw a gray cloud because I was behind the emergency exit near the wings. And this gray cloud passed. I thought, that's bizarre. And the, tr the plane shuddered. And instantly there was the smell of burnt chicken just wafting through the interior of the plane. And I, I knew we had hit a bird. Eric remained quite calm for the next minutes as he saw and felt the plane turn, assuming that they'd be landing at Newark Airport. But then... Sully came on the intercom, and this is the only seven words that were mentioned on the intercom. It was, this is the captain, brace for impact. I made the brace for impact announcement in the cabin, and immediately... Through the hardened cockpit door, I heard the flight attendants begin shouting their commands in response to my command to brace. Heads down, stay down. I could hear them clearly. They were, they were chanting it in unison over and over again to the passengers to warn them and instruct them. So we descended, 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 and I still had this hope, unrealistic as it was, that we were just going to go to Newark. But at one point I realized, wow, no, it's not. We, we're going down. And that began what I would say as probably the, the darkest moments of my life, where you, you feel this countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, thinking, okay, these are the last seconds of my life. Um, I took out a, a business card that was in my wallet, and I quickly wrote a message to my family, just saying, I love you. And I shoved it in my pocket because at that point, I didn't know how, what the crash was going to be. I thought, well, if I get separated from whatever, at least they'll find the message in my pocket. So 
for me, it wasn't dark as in, in terror. It was just dark as sad, like just game over. As we all know, Eric and everyone on US Air Flight 1549 survived. The plane quickly settled down into the water and I looked around, and this is just a matter of two, three seconds. I looked around and I thought, the plane's intact. It's amazing. I thought, this is not the day we die. Immediately I knew that and I thought, we have just been saved. And, and that is the one thing that always has stuck with me is this, like a vortex where I was at the darkest place you could ever be in your life. And then, boom, I get sucked into getting my life back. And I thought, wow, I've, I've regained my life. I just, wow, it, it is just the most euphoric moment. Eric is an IMD MBA alumnus. And he told me his story several years ago over lunch. The details of the Hudson Water landing are amazing. But I learned then that this wasn't Eric's first aviation mishap. It was just out of Los Angeles. So rewind 20 years before that. And I was a young pup at the time. I was just in my first big job. I had been out to L.A. doing some customer research. And you know how at LAX planes tend to take off going over the Pacific. And we took off again midday, middle of the week. This is summertime even, so no, no problems with the weather. And on takeoff, there was an issue with one of the engines that the pilot noticed as we were maybe 30 seconds into the flight. And in his effort to try to resolve something, he mistakenly turned off both engines. And so we had... At that point, I think altitude was 3,000 feet, and we lost 80% of that. So we fell from 3,000 feet to about 500. For the way Eric described it, the situation doesn't sound as calm as his experience with Captain Sully. So here we are 10 seconds away from crashing, and in that flight, everyone had their life jackets on. The flight attendants were panicking. They were telling us over the intercom, you know, brace for impact, the plane's going to crash. Um, and then people were inflating their life jackets and the flight attendants were screaming out, don't inflate your life jackets. The plane did not crash. The pilot pulled it out of its nosedive and the flight continued on its way. People were traumatized, but they lived and got to their planned destinations. Clearly, Eric's experience is rare. Few of us have been in a catastrophic flight situation or developed a fear of flying. We are more likely to be flight shamed and feel guilty or genuinely want to reflect on our habits. For many, flying for business or holiday is like getting on a bus is for school children. But still, after Eric's two near misses, he continues to fly. We need to think about how we make these decisions. So why would someone who has had a bad experience choose to do it all over again? Well, there are a host of reasons someone might do something again that really didn't go well the first time, ranging from physiological reasons to purely psychological reasons. That's Alison Meister, IMD Professor of Leadership. With a career spanning North America, South America, Australia, Europe, and Switzerland, flying was and is an essential part of her work with clients. First, when coming through and surviving adversity or even trauma, 
Individuals often reflexively make sense on what happened to them, and they can even grow from the experience and turn the negative into a positive. This is called post-traumatic growth. And so if we experience growth from trauma, we can feel a deep sense of gratitude and positive change in our life. And this can make us take on what could be seen as a negative experience again. Second, when it comes to decision-making, nearly 80% of us have what you call an optimism bias. This means that we have a tendency to overestimate our likelihood of experiencing positive events and underestimate our likelihood of experiencing negative events. So we might downplay the downsides of a risky decision. Finally, sometimes risky or challenging experiences can become addictive. Gamblers will continue to take risks and engage in risky behavior because they can become addicted to the dopamine high, despite that the risk and reward ratio is really not in their favor. We see this as well with extreme athletes who experience that fear of death, which releases huge amounts of dopamine, and they can enjoy a natural high, which can really become quite addictive. And the problem with this is that our brains can get accustomed to operating at these high levels of dopamine, um, which pushes extreme athletes to constantly seek out more dangerous, adventurous activities. Looking at the growing awareness of the need for sustainability, the big question is how to reconsider something that is associated with important positive things. People fly because they like what it enables them to do. For many, Flying is the only way to reunite with families or friends, like for Allison. Looking around, I see many people who have children studying or living in foreign countries, including you and me, Patrick. Some of you, our listeners, have replied to the survey questions and you articulated clearly. For instance, one listener wrote, Living at the tip of Africa almost everywhere you go is by plane. Europe is close, it is dense, and it has well-developed public transport options, options most countries in the rest of the world lack. It is so easy for European climate activists to judge other people because they think Europe is the world. Andre Schneider, the CEO of Geneva Airport, spoke about this passionately. We have quickly to look at the balance of why people travel. We know that approximately 80% of the travelers are traveling either for leisure or for visiting friends and relatives. I come back to my point about uh, the diasporas who want to see family. People want to go to vacations, they want to see the families. And unfortunately, Zoom is not really the best way to take a bath in the Mediterranean. And I must admit to have a hug with your family, even if that might not be that much recommended in COVID times, is a little bit more difficult to Zoom. Indeed, a hug or handshake via Zoom or Teams is not the same. Global lives require flying. Still, jetting short distances point to point when alternatives are available should be questioned. How do we make those decisions? And how do we make the right one? The right ones by who? Alison, in a normal situation, how do we make decisions? Not the near-death, uncontrollable situations like Eric's too, but normal. Should I do this meeting or not? Should I drive or take the train? How do we decide? So what happens to our brains when we make decisions? Well, psychologist and Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman describes how we make decisions through two different systems in our brain. System one is our fast, automated, intuitive approach to decision-making. 
System one guides our rules of thumb and helps us navigate our everyday decisions. Things like what to eat, whether to laugh or cry, and how to simply engage with others in the world around us. We can see a whole host of unconscious bias creeping into System 1 automated decisions. System 2, on the other hand, is our conscious, what we like to think of as rational brain. This brain holds beliefs about ourselves and the world around us. This system helps us make moral and reasoned choices and decides what to do with the information that we're taking in consciously. Usually system two activity is activated when we do something that doesn't come naturally and requires some sort of conscious mental exertion. When it comes to this system, we basically make decisions that align to some conception of who we think we are and what kinds of things that someone like me does. Or these decisions might be aspirational based on who we want to be or be seen as by our social groups. We also might make conscious decisions that we feel will benefit us in some way. Importantly, we like to be consistent or at least feel like our values and our identity is aligned to the decisions that we're making. In fact, we like this so much that we will sometimes make a decision and then align our beliefs and our identities and values to that decision and the behavior itself. That's the essence of cognitive dissonance, which is the mental discomfort that we feel when we hold two conflicting beliefs, values, or attitudes, that misalignment between me and the decisions that I'm making. Some of the passengers on both of Eric's flights were tourists. What happens to the tourism industry if many of us choose not to fly or to fly less often? Pre-COVID, we know that almost 90 million jobs were directly linked to passenger aviation. And tourism employs another 319 million people and made up over 10% of world GDP, a total of almost $9 trillion. In 2018, 58% of international tourists traveled to the destination by air. For developing countries in particular, airlines provide a vital economic lifeline. In Africa, an estimated 7.7 million people are employed in areas supported by the steady influx of overseas visitors, most of whom arrive in the region by air. Some of our decisions to fly, or how to travel, or whether airports, airlines, and tourism should be supported, are decided by politicians. We asked Professor Michael Yadzigi of IMD what he thought of the politician's role. Politicians occupy a really interesting space in public discourse, and frankly, I don't envy them at all. Why? Well, they're often the ultimate target for a large number of influencers who are all pushing their own legislative or regulatory agenda. Airports, lobbying industry groups with various and sometimes competing goals, local neighborhood groups that might be impacted by traffic or pollution, and more. They all want to push politicians toward their own goals. And somehow, politicians need to ideally find solutions that satisfy enough of the powerful interests to keep them in office. So how do politicians juggle all of these competing pressures and demands? How does a politician decide? There are some interesting principles from public choice theory that often guide politicians' choices. First, squeaky wheels. So this is the idea that small, intensely interested, well-resourced groups 
punch above their weight. They can organize more easily and have more energy around the issues that they feel so passionately about. So for example, airline lobbying groups will tend to have outsized influence because they're well-resourced and well-organized and have so much at stake in many of the decisions around flying. Another important principle is that loss looms large. Most constituencies will thank a politician much less for an additional benefit they receive as a result of the politician's decision than constituents will attack them so fiercely for any losses they might occur. This tends to inhibit political action because there are almost always some losers in a piece of legislation. This is one of the reasons political gridlock is endemic. It's no surprise, therefore, that ticket taxes for carbon have an uphill battle. Yes, we know from the vote in Switzerland in June that putting a tax on airline tickets is not something that the majority of the population wants. But couldn't decisions like this to help the environment, to save the planet, be made at the Capitol by our elected officials themselves? Politics are local. Politicians might be concerned about broader global issues, but they're most responsive to what happens in their own backyard. Noise pollution for local communities facing an airport expansion are going to weigh more heavily in politicians' calculations than the impact of that expansion on global carbon emissions. Michael has highlighted the issues, constraints, and demands our politicians face. This makes their decisions challenging. In our interview with Clive Jackson on the air travel company Victor, he had a few words to say about politicians and their role. We'll be looking to more forward-thinking, innovative business leaders who can come together and think through the myriad of issues to solve these problems rather than focus on politicians who are there for a four-year term as elected politicians who pander to those that are going to elect them, pander to the zeitgeist of the moment, and that quite possibly stifles the opportunity for open and balanced debate. Clive is not wrong. And what Professor Michael Yazigi shared with us about our politicians and how they make decisions is important. But back to us. How can we, or how should we, make better decisions? To make more thoughtful decisions, we need to press the pause button. We need to make our assumptions about who we are and the world around us less automatic and more conscious. This can be done, for example, by asking ourselves and others questions. Questions like, why? Why this? Why not? Why now? Can trigger a more complex and rational thinking process. This helps us reduce some of the noise in the decision-making process altogether. Questions can help us to consciously determine if our decisions are based on our values, on social pressures, or on our assumptions or biases that we haven't challenged, or simply on old habits and outdated heuristics. The pause button. We all know that fighting climate change is an important decision. So it is obvious that we all need to make many more and more thoughtful decisions about many aspects of our lives. Whether it is flying, eating beef, driving a car, recycling, or getting vaccinated. 
Yet, when we are offered a delicious piece of meat or chocolate, we often take a bite, even if it is harmful to us or the environment. Do we let old habits continue to decide things for us? Are we on autopilot too often? Eric, are you on autopilot? Do you listen to the safety briefing on the plane before takeoff? Or like most of us, you assume, I've heard this a hundred times. Let's just get going. I do listen to it. You do need to pay attention. And what I pay attention to more than anything, though, is where I am on the plane. So what is my position relative to the exits? I joke during our lunch in Paris that if I ever see you ahead of me at the gate, I'm changing planes. I know this is a stupid question, as I know you still fly, but how do you put the past behind you? I've been able to put the two incidents in perspective. The odds of this happening are so incredibly remote that the chances of it ever happening again are negligible. Um, secondly, I don't want those two incidents to block who I am or what I need to do in my life. And I don't want them to be uh, an unnecessary hindrance. And so I'm able to put them in their place. And I'm able to have actually learned from them and say, wow, I've, I've, I've hit the jackpot twice in life. The, the, the jackpot, if you will, the lottery of living. And I'm able then to say, right, I need to benefit from that. And I want to profit from that. I want to either enjoy my life, further my business interests, help others, whatever the case may be. But I don't want those two incidents to hold me back. Any changes to how you fly? Did you develop new habits? I would encourage any listeners to thank the crew as you either board or as you leave. Because a lot of people view, especially the flight attendants, as kind of servers in the air. And they do fulfill a very important role, and they are trained for it. And so oftentimes, I will mention during the course of a flight, I really respect what you do. And I think it's important they hear that because it's a profession where they're often kind of berated or even there's violence in the last few weeks. There have been reports of violence happening, which is a big problem. Um, and I also, of course, tell the um, cockpit crew as well that, um, that I really appreciate their efforts. And even with all the automation, there is still a huge role. And that's what really what Sully has demonstrated is that no matter all the automation that exists in the plane, it's the expertise, the ability for someone to make judgments on the fly and to be able to show leadership and teamwork, all of those important kind of management lessons. But that was just shows the immense value of what a pilot can do in a severe situation. I think Eric Stevenson's comments are an appropriate close to this episode. Jim, maybe we need to become a bit more like Captain Sully, good captains of our lives who make the right judgments on the fly, not only for ourselves, but also for others. We created this podcast series as an exploration of passenger air traffic, as neither I nor Patrick felt qualified to answer the many questions around aviation's present and future, nor to be able to tell you how to make decisions. We've learned a lot, and we hope you our listeners have as well. In our next episode, we'll take a closer look at the answers we have found to the many questions we and you have raised. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Should I Fly, written and presented by me, Patrick Reinmuller. And me, Jim Polkrano. We are a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland 
one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time.